Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I am happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on hidden history, African-American cemeteries in central Virginia. Lynn Rainville is the acting dean of Sweetbriar College, where she also directs Tusculan Institute for Public History. Although her Ph.D. is in Near Eastern archaeology, she has spent the last two decades studying historic American cemeteries, segregated schools, enslaved communities, poor forms, and World War I. She is the author of several books, one of which is Hidden History, African American Cemeteries in Central Virginia. And she has a forthcoming book, Invisible Founders, How Two Centuries of African-American Labor Transformed a Plantation into a College. And that's due out in 2019. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Lynn Rainville to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you so much, Bernice. I'm so glad to be here tonight with you. Oh, I am too. So let's just get started. First of all, what motivated your interest in African-American cemeteries? So when I was an undergraduate, I had been studying historic New England cemeteries. And years later, when I moved to Virginia, I had never lived south of the Mason-Dixon line before and was uh, very ignorant about burial practices here in Virginia. And one of my first jobs was at Sweetbriar College, and Sweetbriar College was formerly a plantation. And as such, with a fairly large uh, community of enslaved families, there was a slave cemetery on the college campus. And as uh 
cemetery expert. I was very curious about the burial patterns, and so I started exploring that one site. Um, and after I had mapped it and tried to begin researching who was buried in that uh, sacred ground, um, I started looking for other slave cemeteries, and after a couple years of locating a couple dozen slave cemeteries, I realized that if, in order to really understand these mortuary practices, it would be helpful to study a couple hundred years' worth of historic African-American funerary and burial traditions in Virginia. So that's how it all started back in 2001. Wow, that is amazing. So exactly, before we even get any further into this discussion, where <laughs> in central Virginia did you search for the slave cemeteries? So I ended up doing a very unscientific study of two counties. One was the county that I lived in, which is Albemarle County. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is roughly in the center of Albemarle. And then Sweetbriar College is located in Amherst County. So these are two counties in central Virginia, just east of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, Amherst is about uh, just north of Lynchburg, Virginia. And Charlottesville is roughly two hours south and west of Washington, D.C. Okay, and so when you're searching for a cemetery, exactly, I mean, just take your time and tell us exactly what are you looking for? Well, a good and very broad question. Uh, I should stop right here and, and just clarify that um, my in my research, I ended up visiting over 200, 250, um, so over the last 15 years, ended up visiting more than 250 historic African-American cemeteries here in central Virginia. And those span, the earliest one that I located contained burials from about the 1780s. And then uh, in my wanderings, uh, I, these included cemeteries that had burials up until the present. So in that long uh, span of time, um, cemeteries take many, many different forms. So um, if, for example, if I'm looking for maybe an early 20th century African-American cemetery that's only about a century old, those types of cemeteries will be located, uh, connected to African-American churches, maybe in old neighborhoods, in people's backyards. Um, or in community cemeteries, whereas if I'm looking for a 200-year-old African-American cemetery here in Virginia, that would be the burial grounds of either enslaved families or a free black community, and those types of burial grounds um, are much more difficult to locate. Um, so to locate sites like that, I use a, a lot of different strategies, including looking at old maps, trying to locate old plantations. I mean, so for example, in the case of Sweetbriar College, in the 19th century, it was the Sweetbriar Plantation. And on any of these old plantations, if you're looking for the old historic African-American burial ground, you'd want to start with um, the, the center of the plantation, like the old big house, any standing slave cabins. And then ideally you'll find the burial ground of the white family. Um, because usually the African-American burial ground is within a quarter to a half mile of 
the cemetery for the owner's family. And you just start going through clue after clue, depending on if you're looking for a slave cemetery or maybe um, a late 19th century cemetery or a more modern cemetery. Mm-hmm. So when you're starting near the old big house, I mean, is mm-hmm. there any particular direction you go? Or you just said, okay, I found the old big house, <laughs> and now I'll right. just start walking. Just what happens well, after you get there? <laughs> Well, I've tried, uh, again, from the very scientific to the unscientific. I have certainly spent many hours walking in all directions from um, a big house. I I can say that there's no – once you find a cemetery, very often the headstones are oriented east-west to align with kind of the rising and the setting sun and uh, to face uh, towards, um, you know – towards the resurrection, but in terms of where the cemetery is located vis-a-vis the big house, there's no particular cardinal direction. And so it's not so much which direction you head. It has more to do with the topography. A lot of times these historic cemeteries are located on either an actual hill or a a rise in in the land, um, both for symbolic reasons um, and then also to ensure that the burials are above the nearby water table. So if mm-hmm. I'm standing at a big house um, and I'm trying to figure out where a cemetery for enslaved families is located, I'm looking for high ground. I'm looking for oftentimes historic trees, like thick oak trees or old cedar trees, um, because very often these old sites have had trees either uh, in a ring around the site or somehow connected um, to the cemetery itself. Um, I'd also be looking for um, periwinkle. It's one of these, frankly, somewhat uh, enigmatic plants. And I say that because in all of my research, I never found any documentation for mourners planting periwinkle deliberately at these historic cemeteries. And yet, boy, 80% of the time, if I were walking through the woods looking for one of these old cemetery sites, one of the first clues is a covering of periwinkle. Interesting. So, Interesting. Yeah. Yes. I know I saw, um, I went to the old slave cemetery up Mount Pillar, and I yes. saw the periwinkle. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, um, hmm I just got a there's a but, comment that says, "Wow, that's interesting." <laughs> it's a, well, and it I can but here I need to make a couple recommendations that if you are looking for an historic site, um, do not do it in the summer <laughs> because, okay. because of the ticks, the snakes, the poison ivy. I mean, for a thousand reasons, um, go in the winter time. And another clue to these historic sites. In some cases, the headstones are either poor preserved or in some cases, if they were constructed from wood, they might be, you know, eroded almost entirely and or the stones themselves are sometimes not more than a foot high, so they're they're hard to see. So the very best time for the sort of site that you're looking for, which might be um, uh, inscribed field stones, uh, you know, in a site that doesn't have any tall markers, 
Um, you're also looking for the depressions associated with that cemetery. And a really good time to see depressions on the landscape is when the leaves have just fallen or when um, there's been a light snowfall. And I say that because um, if you get a light snowfall, you know, the snow will start to melt, but it will melt like a couple hours later in the depressions themselves because the depressions are just that teeny, teeny bit cooler than the, the higher ground. And so you'll get this pattern if you can imagine kind of that patchwork quilt of, of the um, oval depressions, you know, the body length oval depressions associated with each individual person in a cemetery, you're going to, the snow is going to kind of mark each one of those depressions so that those mm-hmm. are good times to search. Unfortunately, I learned this the hard way. Um, and I, the first couple of years that I was doing this research because I was a professor and I, I had to teach during the year. So the only, free time I had was in the summer, I spent many an extremely hot Virginian summer day basically covered in ticks trying to crash through um, the very dense overgrowth that is common to Virginian forests. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a question coming out of the chat room. What about specific religions? Did they have certain headstones or markings at the grave or cemetery? So religious beliefs have a lot of influence on what the headstone looks like. Um, Here in Virginia, for the cemeteries that I was looking at in central Virginia, most of the African-American families were second, third, fourth, fifth generation from the Caribbean and Africa. So the, 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 the predominant religion if any religion was referenced directly, the predominant religion that was being referenced was Christianity. Um, so crosses, um, you know, of course, as you move out of the antebellum period, then these cemeteries have, all, you know, all sorts of Christian symbols, praying hands and Bibles and, you know, all sorts of other iconography. Um, as you move further into the South or into different parts of the South, you get um, symbols that are more closely tied to various African traditions. But in, in my particular study, that that was very rare to find. And then, of course, again, if you move into 20th century historic African-American cemeteries here in Virginia, you can uh, you know, see evidence of uh, Jewish beliefs on stones or Muslim beliefs. Um, and each of those, for example, in, in the Jewish cemeteries here in central Virginia, you might see a Star of David um, or the use of Hebrew on a stone. So religion is often messaged on a gravestone, but in the antebellum period, it, it's um, either absent entirely or it's a Christian symbol. Mm-hmm. And what type of markings, period, did you find in some of those uh, some of the cemeteries, I mean, you mentioned the, the tombstones, but, but what else did you find? Because some of the cemeteries may not have had anything. Right. So this is very much for these antebellum cemeteries that are being used by African-American families here in Virginia. Um, if the family was enslaved, they may or may not have had the resources or the time to carve a gravestone. So in some cases, uh, the families were using wooden markers, and, and those do not always preserve very well 
you know, for 100, 200 years uh, in this particular mm-hmm. climate in Virginia. Or they might, in some cases, um, and even into the 20th century in some of these uh, graveyards, it's clear that families were planting trees or rose bushes or, or yucca plants. I mean, something botanical uh, that, again, that you might, the tree might be preserved, but there may be no surviving record of who is buried underneath that. And then in other cases, um, individuals were being buried under small metal markers that are provided by funeral homes. And these are these, mm-hmm. they look like picture frames and sometimes they contain pieces of paper under a piece of glass or maybe small metal letters. And, and those sometimes do not preserve very well. Um, and then in other cases, some, in some communities, you have craftspeople who are making um, unusual and unique markers out of concrete, out of shells, out of glass, using mirrors. Um, uh, uh, plastic crosses out of uh, or um, crosses out of rebar so you can have a wide variety of different types of markers whether it's a formal gravestone or something that was again crafted locally to mark the remains of the dead Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now although you you mentioned um going to former plantations, did you also have individuals in the community to give you a hint as to where certain cemeteries were located? Oh, absolutely. Uh, So when I was looking in former plantations, that was when I first started, and I was both new to Virginia um, and didn't have a lot of community connections. But then very quickly, even as I was trying to search for plantations, old plantations, you know, that's not as simple as looking it up in the yellow pages, uh, even to do that, Mm -hmm. I relied on members of the community, you know, asking them questions about different families, either, you know, where families had been enslaved in the past or a name that had been passed down, um, either the name of a former owner, a name of families or a name of a plantation. Um, And then for many other cemeteries, again, these postbellum cemeteries or early church cemeteries, um, Local African-American genealogical societies were invaluable, um, uh, spoke with uh, people at different um, community gatherings. And very often what would happen is I would find uh, either run, I mean, sometimes I was actually meeting people in cemetery. I would be in one cemetery mapping it and recording it, and people would, you know, stop and ask what I was doing, and I would explain and then ask them if they knew of any other nearby historic African-American cemeteries. And, you know, they would kind of rattle off the names that they knew or, again, an elder member in the community um, who could remember where either their family members were buried or other members of the community. So it it was very much, um, you know, once I started, uh, you know, most people had, many people in the community had at least one lead. And so you can imagine as the years passed, that's how I ended up with 250 cemeteries because, in this particular region in Virginia, back 150 years ago, oftentimes the African American population was between 45 and 52 percent. So, mm-hmm. in some cases, mm-hmm. an actual majority, and that translates into a lot of historic cemeteries. It's just that many of them have been overlooked with the passage of time, forgotten, um, you know, damaged, vandalized, or in in some other way have have, have 
been lost to modern memory. Now, I mean, Tuna, that's a, that's a lot of cemeteries, but what, after you found these cemeteries, did you do with the information that you gathered about who was in there, who was interred in those cemeteries? So I did a couple different things. Um, more than a decade ago, I uh, hosted a website um, to start per- sharing information about these cemeteries. And, and I should say that, you know, 10 years ago, it was kind of an unusual effort um, and kind of a unique resource. But uh, as the years have passed, um, most of those cemeteries, people who are on findagrave.com and some of these other contemporary sites have you know, kind of scrape that data and put it into find a grave. So um, nowadays, a lot of the information is available uh, through find a grave and or on ancestry.com. Um, then, of course, some of these cemeteries I talked about in my book. Um, and then in other cases, um, one of the most important things to me was if I had located a cemetery or relocated a cemetery, you know, in the middle of the woods on an old plantation, you know, a site that maybe even the descendants, um, because in some cases these descendant families had left the area. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it was a site that that many people had forgotten about for decades, if not generations. Then I would make an effort to check in with either a local historical society, um, a local, like the planning um, commission uh, in a, Mm -hmm. a given community. Because one of my main goals in doing this research was, sharing information with uh, descendants if they themselves did not know where the cemeteries were located. And then the second part of that was ensuring that um, these sites were uh, re-recorded, I mean, added to modern maps, and especially real estate maps and planning maps, so that these sites were not destroyed either intentionally or unintentionally through construction or, you know, future developments or roads or, you know, any of the number of things that can damage these sacred sites. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, we have another question coming out of the chat room. What was the best, uh, what is your best tip about researching for cemetery records? Where are they found if no church is near? So, great question. Um, one of the one resource is the death certificate. So again, it, here it kind of depends on if you're if you're looking for a particular person, or uh, if if you've identified a community and then you're just curious where there might be cemeteries within that community. But um, and, and and here for not just Central Virginia, I mean any given state will um, be saving uh, death certificates. And then the twist is that. Um, death certificates have not always been legally required. So here in mm-hmm. Virginia, um, our Bureau of Vital Statistics was created in around 1917. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for someone who died in 1870, you, there may or may not be a death certificate on file. You may have to get into the courthouse record. But for those 20th century death certificates, they, they have a, bl- a blank space that asks for the place of burial. So... You know, again, depending on how you're coming at this question, the death certificate might be a good place to start, although I would caution uh, the listeners uh, and say that um, in some cases the burial ground, when they filled out the name, they, they didn't give a full address. So it says things like 
family cemetery, which of course is now somewhat circular and will not help you if you didn't already know where the family cemetery was. Um, but um, I've lost the second part of that of the individual's question. She just They're said, "Where are find... where are the records? Oh, the records, cemetery records. No church, no church is near. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So the death certificate is one great record." Sometimes um, local funeral homes, um, funeral homes will not, do not necessarily, I mean, now they keep most likely computerized records, but, you know, if you go to a funeral home and ask for records from the 1930s, it, it's very unlikely that they have them easily or readily available. Um, but it, it's worth a try because some funeral homes have remarkable records or if nothing else, uh, the institutional memory of where people are buried um, and then you can also look in local, if there's a local newspaper, obituaries often give a place of burial. So there are lots of ways, and, and occasionally um, in a family Bible, they'll list um, where people are buried. Usually they, if they list names, they're just going to list the uh, birth and death dates. But mm-hmm. I have seen examples where families have specified, again, which burial ground. Um, so those are all good places to start. Okay, and then there is another question, and it goes back to uh, headstones and markers. Have you found any messages, uh, that unique messages or information on the headstones or markers uh, that you probably wouldn't just see, but there was something unique going on in that particular community? So, yes. And I have a couple examples of these in my book. Um, and I say that because some of the, the the ones that were the most mysterious were the ones, like um, if anyone does have uh, the book on hand, on page 86. Um, these are stones that had line after line of inscriptions, uh, except for the fact that um, the, both the letters that were being used and then the ordering of the letters um, was not, um, it, it didn't easily transcribe to something in English. So it's not mm-hmm. clear if the families were deliberately masking, I mean, that they were using letters in a in more of a code um, uh, or trying to transliterate, you know, using English letters but transliterate words from a different language. Um Unfortunately, I, I have not, uh, on that particular example on that page, it's, it's clearly a series of numbers, which, because there are numbers like mm-hmm. 1848, or, you know, it, it, it's quite possible that the numbers have something to do with when the person died, whether it's by month or yes. date or year. I mean, it gets a little hard to decipher some of the numbers. But then there are other combinations of letters, and one of them is roughly AMA, A-M-M-A, which, depending on either the language that they're using or, again, what they're trying to mask here um, could either be a reference to mother or anno, um, the Latin for year. So, I mean, whatever it is, there's lots of complicated things going on here because in the, the example I'm talking about, this is a, a like a rectangular stone. Uh, it has almost a dozen lines on it, and on each line there are anywhere from um, 10 to 20 individual letters. Um, and again, no one word is entirely clear, um, but someone put a tremendous amount of effort to carve into this stone, you know, letter by letter, number by number, so 
so there was clear. I mean, this is clearly a message, <laughs> or I mean, they're they're trying mm-hmm. to there. There's meaning behind this, but I have not yet been able to decipher it. Yeah, like some kind of code that they were placing on that stone. But you know, mm-hmm. tell us though. You, you're talking about the stones. What differences and similarities did you observe with the black and white markers? So it all depends on what which time period we're talking about. If we're talking about the antebellum okay. period, um, enslaved families are almost always using the material that they're selecting is something that's locally available. So again, a field stone quartz. I mean, these are families who uh, probably lacked both the monetary means to purchase the stone and the time and possibly even the permission to do so. Um, so for example, if, just pick 1850 if you're looking at maybe an enslaved family's graveyard you're going to be looking at these you know locally available stones hand carved you know with hand carved names and dates on them and some cases the stones have no carvings whatsoever and then in contrast if you were to look maybe in in this on the same plantation at the the owner's family um, and their headstones you might find marble obelisks or um, slate markers with the um, a one popular motif from that time period um, would be an urn and a willow carved into it. And so those sort of stones, mm-hmm. they take time, they take money, they take craftspeople. And even though somewhat ironically in many cases on these plantations, the, the craftspeople were the African-Americans, but whether or not they had, again, the time um, to carve their own headstones as opposed to if they were being forced to carve headstones for the white family, you know, sometimes um, it, it's just like the barber who, who doesn't cut their own hair. So um, they might be the skilled craftspeople, but they do not have the time to make the, carve the stones for their own families. Yes, yes. Now you did talk uh, about rituals. And before we take a break, I just want you to just share with us some of the slave cemeteries and mortuary rituals that you uncovered in your research. Well, one of the most important rituals had to do with when they could hold their funerals. And again, this goes back to this issue of, you know, freedom to conduct um, one's own uh, funerary rituals. So very often in the historic record, um, it shows that African-American families were burying their dead not only at night, but oftentimes at midnight at for kind of that symbolic uh, betwixt and between night and daytime. And also mm-hmm. for the practical reason, when very late at night, the largest number of enslaved men, women, and children would not have any other required duties. In other words, you could probably get the largest um, gathering possible in the middle of the night. Um, yeah. So some of the you know images that I used in the book that are from various historic collections and uh, lithographs from the 19th century show, um, you know, enslaved men carrying torches and then pallbearers carrying um, handmade coffins um, to the site of the burial, and in fact, in one of them, it's clear that m- some of the mourners are kind of ritually sweeping with um, some brush, like a looks like a, a some sort of a branch. They're 
symbolically cleaning the way uh, for the pallbearers to carry the coffin um, for this midnight burial. Mm-hmm. You also, you know, mentioned just with the, with the ritual as far as the inability to stop work and bury someone that sometimes they had to bury them right away. Are they? What happened? Or what's different in those that passed away in the winter time versus those that passed away in the summertime? Right. One of the important differences here is between the expediency of the burial and then the time and ability to hold a funeral. Um, you know, mm-hmm. normally the two would co-occur. And depending on your religious belief, they would you you would they would be very closely. Um, connected um, but in the case of some enslaved families it was the burial that occurred very quickly um, because of course they weren't embalming in the antebellum period so you would have wanted and needed to bury um, a body rather quickly but that didn't mean that they had the time yet not only the time to hold the funeral right away but in many many cases African-American slavery um, separated African-American families across different plantations. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if someone's father died, it could take any number of days or longer to communicate that loss um, to his children and other relatives, let alone for them to find um, the time. And in some cases having to, it's not just finding the time, of course, it's having to, um, you know they're not running away at that point, but uh, get away um, in in the night to attend a funeral. Um, mm-hmm. And for that reason, because of some of the effort the effort that it took, sometimes these funerals very often um, they turned into a celebration of the life of the individual who had passed, but they also turned into a moment for um, families to reconnect across different plantations and then in some yeah. cases it was a chance to meet um other potential you know husbands and wives or brides and grooms um because of sometimes the rareness of the the, the size of the gathering um and the ability for all these families to come together mhm Well, we're going to take just a very quick break, and when we come back, I'd like you to talk about free people of color and what you observed uh, as far as finding the cemeteries and perhaps talk a little bit more about other hidden histories that you found in African-American cemeteries. So quick break, okay?
welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. And Patricia has joined us in the chat room. Hi, Patricia. You can join us every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where we will have an expert to share resources stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Dr. Lynn Rainville, the author of Hidden History, African American Cemeteries in Central Virginia. So, Lynn, let's just talk about free people of color and what have you found about the burial rituals and also the locations of the grave sites for free people of color? So this is one of the, locating the burial grounds of free people of color is one of the hardest types of graveyards to locate, um, at least here in Virginia. And that's because during the antebellum people, um, these uh, free families um, lived in cities, lived on their own, you know, on their own private property. And so that means that just like their white counterparts, um, they're often, if, if they own their own homes, especially in rural areas, they have small family burial grounds in their backyards. And that means that now, 150 plus years later, um, those small family cemeteries are very, very hard to locate because they often mm-hmm. don't have more than 12 or 15 stones total and they're still in someone's backyard, so they're on private property um, and very rarely Uh, you know, noted on a map, Uh, free people of color living in cities. um, For for example, in in the city of Lynchburg, there was a large uh, free black population during the antebellum period. Um, And uh, many of them uh, are buried in some of the city cemeteries um, in segregated sections. Um, And then uh, somewhat kind of intuitively, then the, the issue is, just you're looking at these some of these lovely stones, and then there's nothing necessarily about the stone that tells you that it was a free person of color. Um, so now you'd have to have done some of the genealogical research. You'd have to be reading the name and realize that this, that this was a free person of color. So the ones that I had the most success locating were when the, the, these uh, free blacks had established their own communities. So here in Elmore mm-hmm. County, we had several communities where these families um, not only bought land but had large, you know, hundreds of acres worth of land and had established their own community. And then within those communities, there would be a community burial ground um, that was relocated sometimes generations later. Mm-hmm. Well, give us an example of some of your what you would consider your unique findings as you went through these 200-plus cemeteries, what was special about get Just tell us about anyone that just stood out to you. Well, 
probably some of the most uh, moving ones were some of these late 19th century gravestones um, for mothers. Um, and you would start by looking, you, know, you would find a woman's uh, gravestone and uh, oftentimes it would clarify that, you know, she was a, a wife, mother, you know, faithful, uh, any number of um, descriptors. And then in, in these family and community cemeteries, um, you can start, you know, families are very often clustered together. So you, you'll start to realize that she's surrounded by many of her children. And just kind of that power of, uh, you know, in the 19th century, um, a lot of women were having six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve children. And of those children, maybe half weren't making it out of their childhood. You know, they were dying from mm-hmm. various diseases. Um, and cemeteries tend to capture those tragedies. Um, I mean, in one cemetery in particular in Amherst, um, there was an, an obelisk. It was for an, an African-American family, and, and there was an obelisk on it. And very often when in these 19th century obelisks, on each side of the obelisk is a different, you know, maybe there are four different brothers on each side or parents and their children. And on this obelisk, you just kept going around and around, and on each side there were more children, and these are all children dying before the age of, under the age of 12. And then as you looked around the obelisk, you saw all these other small footstones. And this is another pattern where you might put the names of the family on the, on this, the one, the obelisk, and then you're going to mark the individual graves, each with a footstone. And, and by the time I'd counted up the names on the obelisk, the, name, the number of footstones, I realized that this couple had lost six, seven, or eight of their children um, as young adults, and they were all buried, you know, around each other in this one spot. So sometimes it's that kind of powerful sense of, of tragedy and loss and a reminder mm-hmm. that, you know, in the 19th century, the mortality rates were very, very high. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, you, you you have a question coming out of the chat. Have you seen any patterns with free people of color cemeteries, even if they were on their own land? Was there anything unique just because it was on their own land? Um, in that sense, it wasn't so. I, I didn't see any particular trait that was unique. That that the, the correlation between free people of color and their markers, uh, except to say that. In some cases, free people of color had more had access to money and 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 were able to purchase a, a gravestone carved by a professional by a, by a craftsman, and that was less likely in the case of an enslaved family from the same time period. So it, it's mm-hmm. not so much that there's one style that all free people of color are using. It's that on average, their gravestones have more formalized writing. And, and, and I, should, I should really mention here something I don't think I've said explicitly yet, which is that uh, of, an, uh, of the 250 cemeteries I looked at, about three dozen of them were these antebellum cemeteries for enslaved families. And of those three dozen cemeteries, there were oh, hundreds and hundreds of, that were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of gravestones within them. And of that number, only about mm-hmm. 5 or 10% were inscribed with names and dates. So in other words, a lot of slave cemeteries, um, in most slave cemeteries that, that in central Virginia, um, they're just 
stones. They, they don't have a name or a date. And at first this was, you know, I was having a hard time understanding why that would be. Um, and in the end, I think there are multiple reasons. And one of them is because um, in the 1830s in Virginia, there were a series of statutes passed that made it, um, that punished people for teaching enslaved um, men, women, and children to read and write because their yes. white owners were afraid that that would help them in um, plotting escape routes or revolt. Um, so this came after the Nat Turner revolt here in Virginia. And accordingly, after these punishments were in place, you can imagine that if a loved one died, and you, and even if you yourself were literate, and you went to inscribe the marker, well, obviously now whoever the owner is knows that at least someone in the community knows how to read and write, and mm-hmm. there would be the potential mm-hmm. for punishment. Um, so, uh, again, now going back to your question about free people of color, um, on average it would have been more likely for a free person of color to have been literate than some of these enslaved individuals. And so thus the gravestones in a, uh, a free black cemetery are more likely to have the you know names and dates. So given the fact that the, the enslaved cemeteries uh, really didn't have literate individuals to document who was there, how or have you determined who was actually in those various cemeteries that you went to? Right. So in some cases, um, I don't always, I, I can take the example at Sweetbar. Um, okay. Uh, the, the former Sweetbar plantation. There are about 60 people buried in the slave cemetery there. The, the, um, the community uh, had over 155 enslaved men, women, and children on the eve of the Civil War, and you have 60 people buried in that cemetery. Not one of those stones is inscribed. There's no names, no dates. I mean, they're, they're clearly markers. They're clearly depressions. There are headstones. There are footstones, but no names, no dates. So um, over the last 15 years, I have spent a tremendous amount of time, though, asking people in the community, trying to track down death certificates, um, looking in the courthouse for, uh, again, patterns of death um, and birth of people who were associated with Sweetbar. And so while it is true that to this day I cannot, there's not one grave that I can point to and say, you know, here so-and-so is buried, but mm-hmm. having done a tremendous amount of research into those 155 um, men, women, and children, um, I have a pretty good sense of some of the families um, that are buried there and some individuals who are most likely buried there. In other words, individuals that I know were born enslaved at Sweetbriar and died before emancipation. And so most likely they are buried in that cemetery. Um, but it is true that in some cases with these cemeteries, you will probably never know exactly who was buried where. Now, of course, with you know recent advances with DNA, I mean, you, you could go down that route, but um, to be clear, I have never, uh, although my PhD was in archaeology, um, with all of my research, I've, I've uh, committed very early on in this project to never disturb the, the rest of the dead. So I don't dig up bodies or, you know, d- dig anything 
below the ground. I'm looking at these above ground remains, the, the gravestones, you know, a depression and talking with community members. Mhm. Mhm. Now you're being asked for some advice. Mm-hmm. And the advice is what is the best way to care for our cemeteries? Again, excellent question. So the very first thing to do is to make certain that its location, including the perimeter, in other words, precisely where the graves begin and end, that that is on local maps. And by local maps, you know, everything from whatever your local um your uh, like a preservation agency uses or usually there's an economic uh, you know planning center or real estate um, because you want to make certain that if if and when land changes hands if someone either forgets the cemeteries there or it's not very important to them that whatever the future plans are for building at that site that people are respecting the edges of the burial uh, the edges of the graveyard so that they don't harm any of the burials so that's like the mm-hmm. most important thing. But, you know, in, in all my time looking at cemeteries, um, I, I think one of the most important things that any of us uh, can do is to visit these sites, go for walks through these sites, you know, bring our children into these sacred places. Um, because in, in, so often in this research, the only people in the community who remembered where these sites were um, and who knew who was buried in them were the older, the oldest members in the community. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, that if, if that memory and that oral history is, is incredibly important. But if we aren't passing that down through the generations, of course, then the information will die with any any one of us. And we need to ensure that again, children and grandchildren are using. I mean, the, the way I always. Um, talk about these sites is that they're outdoor museums about black mm-hmm. culture so mm-hmm. i mean i take people to public not private cemeteries but to you know local either churchyard communities or uh you know uh city community uh, city cemeteries and take students on tours take uh you know various community groups because um, through any one of these uh sites you can walk through them you know read the names um read through the epigraphs uh, epitaphs that are tend to be very biographical. Um, you know, if, if you're if you're fortunate to be with someone from the community, very often they're going to be able to share with you whether it's their own ancestors or um, people they knew or people they heard about or local business people, lawyers, doctors, you know, community members. Um, I mean, the, each gravestone represents a biography in stone. So uh, I'm a huge believer in visiting these sites to to read through the accomplishments of people in the community. And then you have another question. <laughs> Any specifics or tips? When you find a cemetery on land that is about to be sold or housing built on it, uh, what happened? You know, like what happened in Richmond uh, didn't they find some graves by a bypass or something? Yes, they absolutely did. Um, uh, a very, very large um, uh, burial ground, and which has a very complicated history about when they actually found it, and then, for example, who found it first, and then did individuals notify, you know, proper authorities, and when and 
how was it cared for. So it, it's a very important cautionary tale that if you know of a cemetery and either the land is changing hands or, or someone you know has um, has just announced that they're going to build something, um, there are law. The laws vary from state to state, but here in Virginia, we have a series of statutes that um, make it uh, a crime to disturb human remains, desecrate um, the sepulchral architecture, in other words, the gravestones themselves. Um, now, it's often a question of kind of educating commu- educating community members. So while it is a crime to you know disturb bodies or uh, desecrate gravestones. Um, if you, you know, call the police on someone that may or may not, um, the, uh, you know, it, it depends on whether the police are willing to come and talk to the landowner or talk to the people, you know, the people, uh, working on the land. Um, usually what works better, um, is a community approach. Uh, and again, it depends on if you're talking about if, if land has just changed hands, that the site may or may not be at risk. It depends on what the future owner plans to do. Um, one of the things I recommend, if if it's land that the, that a family still owns, like that the person who's asking this question has control over, um, it's very very useful to put up some sort of an enclosure, a fence. Um, even just planting trees at each of the four corners, you know, something that will always signal in the future where those edges are. And I say that because there's just been so many times in these cemeteries that, you know, you locate the, like the middle of the cemetery and you, you start counting the gravestones and then you start to realize that there are very often different clusters of where families were buried. Um, mm-hmm. And in some cases, a property line, a later property line will basically be, cu- will cut through the cemetery and then you can clearly yeah. tell on either side of that line, like, okay, this the one family, one property owner was clearly taking care of this. And the other side, you know, for example, maybe they were letting cows roam on the other property and the cows were kicking over the stone. So marking the edges somehow, um, I mean, there have been a couple of projects where I've worked with communities to raise money to erect a sign, you know, create a metal sign so that mm-hmm. it was better signposted whose cemetery it was and that it was a cemetery. So any of these different, and, and honestly now with, again, changes in technology, you know, taking uh, either a GPS unit or even your cell phone and, and recording where the, the corners of the cemetery are, you know, sending that into local officials, a local historical society, um, uh, obviously documenting with photographs, you know, what the site looks like, and then uh, talking with community members and descendants um, to keep the the memory of that location alive and hopefully visited, because a site that's being mm-hmm. regularly visited is much less likely to be, you know, either vandalized or, you know, one day, uh, you know, a parking lot gets put on it because people have forgotten that it's even a cemetery. And then, so uh, the questions are coming, so just bear with me. <laughs> now, some colleges have funeral programs. Do you collaborate with them on any way um, how to work with you on the cemeteries? Do you bring the college students into the cemeteries and teach them about uh, what you have uncovered and then what they yeah. the student, they could do in their community? 
Yeah, so I've never worked directly with a funerary. I mean, there are um, the funeral industry is heavily uh, regulated, um, and you know, there's very very specialized programs for being like a mortician. So I, I've never worked directly with um, those sort of specialized programs, but I've certainly worked with my own students at Sweetbriar College, um, and then also given tours to uh, graduate students in, ed- in education programs. Um, mm-hmm. with the idea towards, I mean even though it might seem a little bit strange, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, there's no reason why a fifth grade teacher couldn't be bringing his or her students into a local cemetery to learn about local history. I mean, that is, of course, the way that I use these cemeteries to teach about local history. So I I have worked a lot with students of various ages and backgrounds, um, either to teach them about history in a cemetery or to encourage them to use cemeteries in their own lesson plans. Mhm, mhm. And then you have another question. What is the best uh way to to clean a tombstone? Mm-hmm. Um well to uh um water and a very very soft toothbrush. Um because any sort of soaps or chemicals or cleaning agents um, unless you are a professional, um, you're going to have a really hard time knowing how those the chemicals and whatever you're using is going to react with the the moss on the stone, the stone itself, the type of stone. So, um, really, the safest thing is uh, a very very soft brush and water. And, and then, if it requires more than that, you really should be asking for um, help from a, a professional gravestone cleaner. Which, to be clear, I I'm, I'm not. <laughs> Um, there are people who mm-hmm. specialize in that. Okay. Now, we're, believe it or not, we're almost over. <laughs> Do you have uh, any any closing remarks you would like to share or something that we didn't talk about that you want us to know before we end tonight? I think it's mostly that last piece of the puzzle of visiting these sites, you know, to, to not uh, clearly, if you're going to a cemetery to attend a funeral, you know, that's not the moment where you're going to, you know, be reading epitaphs and, you know, trying to learn about history. So instead it's visiting these sites, um, you know, at a a time when you're not mourning um, so that they aren't just, I mean, I think especially in, in American culture, we tend to think of cemeteries as a place, you know, they're morbid, they're sad, they're depressing. Um, in, in lots of other cultures, uh, cemeteries are a place to reconnect with ancestors, you know, genuflect, think about those who have passed, pass on stories. Um, and I, I just think that the, the more that all of us do that in our communities, um, it's, it's just such a – visiting these sites is a very powerful way to learn about local history and where we've come from and, you know, who, who, uh, who we owe a debt of gratitude for, for kind of where we've come. So I guess that would be my final piece of advice. Well, that's wonderful advice. Uh, there's a question in the chat. Okay, who's planning on visiting a cemetery soon? I can tell you I am because my husband is documenting uh, a cemetery in Louisiana. So we're going to spend seven days writing down everything we can find. So, yes, (laughs) at least the weather's not as bad. We did it last summer, and it was hot. And we were, I was was more afraid of snakes 
than he was, but it was extremely, extremely hot. Well, I want to just thank you so much for coming on the show tonight and sharing your research with us. And, you know, it's one of the things that we need to just keep talking about. We need to visit these cemeteries. We need to recognize that, as you said, this is your museum. This is where your history is. But if we Mm -hmm. neglect to even go there, we're going to forget and think many of the elders are gone. And so we have to have somebody who's going to remember where those cemeteries are located. So thank you so much for coming on tonight to sharing sharing that information with us. And everyone else, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. And so you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, hidden history and cemeteries, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and Afrogenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Soul Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. And also check out my services at BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, this is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover Howard. Good night, everyone. Good night, Lynn. Good night. <laughs>